Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson. March 25th, 1994. The picturesque island of Coronado, situated in the resort city of San Diego, California, is crawling with the Secret Service in preparation for the arrival of William Bill Jefferson Clinton, saxophonist extraordinaire and 42nd President of the United States of America. Clinton is scheduled to deliver a speech at the historic and famously haunted five-star Hotel del Coronado, located close to three military bases, on the 27th. Coincidentally, a two-day UFO conference is taking place at the del Coronado, hosted by Yvonne Smith, a certified hypnotherapist specializing in PTSD and alien abductions, and founder of the Close Encounter Research Organization, CERO. During the weekend, the island will become the site of an abduction event on a scale never seen before or since, allegedly involving President Clinton himself. After an investigation that lasted nearly two decades and involved hundreds of hours of regression therapy with witnesses, Smith uncovered a disturbing story in which a dozen or more people, conveniently all members of CERO, were simultaneously abducted from their rooms on two consecutive nights at different locations. It's got all the hits, folks. Grab your abduction bingo cards and join us as we discuss cape-wearing aliens, perplexed greys struggling with blankets, a man's relentless quest to show his penis to every living organism on Earth, and we're not talking about President Clinton here. And so, so much more. If Yelp had been a thing back then, all of these establishments would have gone out of business. The Village Inn, March 25th. Alice and Lacey drove up to the island with Yvonne and met up with their friend Mike, a former MUFON investigator, his wife, Gina, and Alice's brother, Jack, and his wife, Melanie. All six stayed at the same hotel, the Village Inn, located about half a mile from Del Coronado, in adjoining rooms. Alice and Lacey noticed they were being followed and watched by a Secret Service agent on their way back to the hotel after dinner. The agent continued to observe them until they reached the parking lot. After that, Alice went to bed, and Lacey watched TV. Lacey, awakened by Alice moaning in her sleep, and by a bright light so powerful she could see it, through her closed eyelids, saw a group of short, rotten egg-smelling greys coming in through the window. Having exclusively interacted with Nordics and Mantoids up to this point, Lacey felt the greys weren't there for her, but knew what would happen next. To protect her friend, she quickly got out of bed and jumped on top of Alice, warning her to stay quiet. However, something made Lacey go back to bed, and lie in the fetal position. Meanwhile, Alice's eyes flew open to the frightful sight of a bug-like being leaning over her, touching her shoulder with its long, skinny fingers. 
Startled, she jumped out of bed in fright and retreated to the corner of the room, which turned out to be a poor hiding spot. Alice then found herself floating weightlessly through the window and over the parking lot and passed out. Around the same time Alice was taken, Lacey heard a scream from Mike's room. Alice woke up, feeling heavily sedated, on a table tilted at a non-angle. She watched, terrified, as the greys examining her produced a large needle. They instructed her to remain still, reassured her that everything would be okay, and implanted a bean-shaped object into her leg. After the procedure, they told her, It's done. Go back. Go back. She had the feeling that they did not want her to remember anything and would become angry if she attempted to recall or bring up anything related to the experience. Lacey watched as Alice, appearing as pale as a corpse, was returned to her bed. Quote, they don't know what to do with the blanket. They don't know how to put the blanket on her, the blanket I got from the closet. They lay it this way on her neck, motions with her hands across her neck, horizontally. It drapes on the floor as if to hold her down. Oh, they see me watching. End quote. Frustrated, the dumbass greys give up and tightly wrap the blanket around Alice's neck. Yvonne became acquainted with Mike when he became the section director of the Ventura Santa Barbara MUFON chapter, where Alice was his assistant. Yvonne was invited to participate in monthly meetings held at a golf course in Thousand Oaks, California, where she presented her latest findings and moderated abduction panels. During Mike's leadership, he investigated a double abduction involving Lacey. It was during these interviews that Yvonne met her for the first time. On the 25th, he woke up to a light coming through the window, but dismissed it as a plane and went back to sleep. The following morning, he discovered blood on his pillow and experienced discomfort in his ear throughout the day. As a lifelong abductee, it raised a few red flags for Mike. Weeks after the events, he suddenly became ill at work. His supervisor sent him to employee health. Mike underwent an MRI and was informed that an anomaly had been detected. A hole was found in his ear. During hypnosis, Mike remembered falling asleep while reading a UFO magazine in bed. He was awakened by a light emanating from the window. Thinking it was a plane about to crash into the building, he frantically ran out to the hallway and yelled for help. He eventually returned to bed and the next thing he knew, the room was filled with a bright, milky-white light. He tried to wake Gina, but to no avail. Four beings phased through the window and stood at the foot of the bed. One resembling a bug approached him and inserted a long, thin rod with a small, round cage at the end into Mike's ear, producing an extremely high-pitched sound, but there was no pain. Before the events of March 25th, Jack... Alice's artistic younger brother, with an inexplicable obsession with crystals, had a strange encounter in which he awoke to the sound of a low humming noise and discovered a tiny, wrinkled brown creature by his bedside. The creature used a short black pen to touch him on his forehead, which caused him to feel paralyzed and put pressure on his head. Helpless, he watched as more beings entered the room, removed the covers, and made his wife float above the bed. 
The next thing he recalled was waking up in a bright room filled with machinery, where the aliens placed a device resembling a crown with lights on his head and inserted a wire through his nasal cavity, pushing it all the way behind one of his eyes. Next, he was anally probed with a spoon-shaped object attached to a machine with several appendages akin to an octopus. Jack and Melanie were then transported back to their bed, and the wrinkly brown being performed a mind scan on him. He described feeling as though the being was attempting to erase his memories. Finally, the being reassured him that he would be all right. Jack had the strong impression that he had seen the creature before when he was a small child and had flashes of being in some kind of playpen and seeing it look down on him. Jack had a similar experience on March 25th. He remembered a bright light filling their room, followed by three greys walking through the door toward the foot of the bed. Jay. They are a few inches from the foot of the bed. Just started to walk around the room under his breath. And one is carrying something. I can't tell what it is. Why, yes. Now, just focus in on what he's carrying. Everything is very clear now. Which one is carrying something? The taller one. It looks like some sort of a rod with something round on the very end. Almost like a ball on the very end, maybe a foot long. Oh, he's walking over to me, and he touches me on the head with it. Jack was paralyzed and unable to help as he watched Melanie being lifted up through the ceiling by a beam of blue light. From the hallway, he could hear a man screaming, possibly Mike, while one of the beings who remained with him attempted to comfort him telepathically. Later, Melanie was brought back, and Jack watched the being with the rod leave the way it came in, through the door. The two then fell asleep. The Village Inn, March 26th. Alice woke up with her blanket wrapped tightly around her neck, feeling like dog shit. She experienced flu-like symptoms and felt as though her insides were on fire. Upon further inspection, she noticed puncture marks on her wrist. She and Lacey joined Mike and Gina for breakfast. Gina revealed that Mike woke up with blood on his pillow and that his ear was bothering him greatly. Mike said it was due to him hitting his chin in the bathroom, which he later theorized was a screen memory implanted by the Greys. Meanwhile, Jack, who had been eagerly anticipating the conference and had spent a lot of money on the trip, chose to skip it and instead went on a shopping excursion. He only set foot in the Del Coronado on Sunday, when the conference was almost over. Lacey was consumed with guilt and believed she was, somehow, responsible for the strange events that had befallen her friends. Lacey was one of the subjects of Yvonne's first book, Chosen, Recollections of UFO Abductions Through Hypnotherapy. During the summer of 1993, Lacey began undergoing extensive hypnosis sessions to uncover the truth behind the missing time event that occurred one winter night in November 1992, which she and her friend Loretta had experienced. 
During these sessions, Yvonne discovered that both women had been taken aboard a spaceship and thoroughly examined by aliens. This prompted Lacey to delve deeper into other strange dreams and memories that had plagued her since childhood. Lacey experienced a confusing incident of missing time on January 11, 1994. She went to the library to photocopy an LA Times article that featured her. Upon entering the copy room, she got a migraine and realized her feet were covered in goo. She went back to her house and realized she had lost five hours. She then went to her front porch and inexplicably started crying uncontrollably. She asked Yvonne if scheduling a hypnosis session that day would be possible. Despite Yvonne's busy schedule, she agreed to help. Under hypnosis, Lacey recalled being abducted from the library and taken to a room inside a gigantic spaceship that, quote, covered the entire sky, end quote, where aliens removed her clothes to, quote, clean her out, end quote, end quote. They put some sort of heavy and painful contraption on her head, which made an aggravating high-pitched noise that hurt her ears. In addition, a repulsive substance, extremely similar to the brown goo, shoved down Travis Walton's mouth in the Fire in the Sky movie, which came out a year prior, was forcefully administered into her throat in a similar manner. L. They put this stuff in my throat, and it tastes really bad. And they said they need to clean out my body, that I need to swallow it, and I don't want to swallow it. And I don't know why I can't stop it. Why, yes. Well, what does it taste like? L. Shit. Why, yes. What color is it? L. It's real dark mud. Why, yes. And they said that's to clean you? L. They say it's so I can hear them. I don't want to hear them. She recalled grabbing a long rock-like object, which seemed to trigger the alien's awareness. The alien told her she needed to learn about energy use and that she was supposed to give information about restructuring electrons and the use of ions. A being referred to as the Ugly Dude then took her to a brightly lit room where she was shown six hybrid children who resembled her. Afterward, Lacey struck a deal with her abductors. She would have to care for her hybrid children, and in exchange, the aliens would refrain from abducting her own children. The Villa Capri, March 26th. Sam... A middle-aged movie producer and writer had been plagued by strange reoccurring dreams ever since he was a young boy. One day in 1993, he contacted Yvonne to explore a haunting memory from when he was 10. During the session, Sam vividly recalled a light shining by the side of his bed and a high-pitched, almost musical sound that pulled him towards a doorway. The doorway led to a gray metal corridor with ribbing and a watery-eyed little being, which took Sam to a room and asked him to remove his clothes. There, beings conducted a series of tests on him using a triangular-shaped spatula made of stainless steel or chrome. Sam tried to describe the language used by the beings, which was almost like another language, but he felt he could understand what they were thinking. 
The beings examined his butt and inserted a shaft on a flexible cable with a ball on the end of it, which appeared out of nowhere. S. Mm. It's just a pressure. They just know I don't like it, and they know it upsets me. And one is saying, it's okay. This will just take a minute. You know, like when you go to the doctor. Uh, but it's not like a doctor. I don't like it. Oh, now they're taking it out. I'm on my back and they're trying to comfort me. I feel they're concerned that I might remember something and they don't want me to remember anything. Sam described feeling a tingling sensation in his fingers when they touched him and mentioned how the aliens promised wonders and toys that he would get to play with. The beings then walked off and disappeared. And after a while, Sam found himself back in bed. On October 7th, 1993, Sam scheduled another regression session regarding a triangular mark that appeared on his arm overnight. Sam was very shaken when he noticed the mark that morning and immediately phoned Yvonne. He recounted that he had been levitated off his bed carried through a window in his bedroom. He found himself in a long corridor where two beings were waiting for him. He was then escorted into a black room with tanks that emitted eerie gurgling sounds. He was stopped at one of the tanks and gazed upon a gray, sickly-looking being that appeared dead. S. Oh, it looks so sick, this thing. Oh, God, it looks sort of gray. It looks dead. They're telling me to calm down, that it's a product of me. Something made from me, but it looks dead. It's not moving. It makes me feel sick to my stomach. Sam had always felt a sense of repulsion towards babies, particularly newborns, despite the love he had for his own son. He could never understand this emotion and would often decline to hold a friend's new baby, feeling guilty about it. Afterward, Sam was taken into a brightly lit room with a metal table with an object on it that resembled a syringe, but all metal with a thick stem and a red tip. One of the beings put a device on his left shoulder, which left a red triangular-shaped mark on his upper left arm which he believed to be the Grey's calling card. Sam was eagerly looking forward to the Triad Conference in March, where he could listen to top-notch speakers and meet other experiencers from across the country. Sam was well aware that attending the conference could put his marriage in jeopardy, but he felt a force drawing him there and decided to go anyway. He agonized over telling his wife, but ultimately decided that she would have to understand so, he planned to drive down to San Diego and share a hotel room with fellow Saro member, Gary. Gary is a towering behemoth, standing at a colossal six foot five inches and sporting enough muscles to make Greek gods look like mere mortals. With thick veins like spider webs, pulsing with raw power and an unyielding determination that could move mountains, 
His fists are like sledgehammers, capable of shattering timelines and realities. In short, he's an ubermensch, the king of chads. You really went all out with this one, Jeff. Good job. <laughs> As a child, he had an unexplainable phobia of owls and experienced ear infections at an alarming frequency. When he was 12, Gary experienced missing time during a camping trip to Navarro River Redwoods State Park with his Boy Scout troop. Gary and his friend decided to explore a nearby creek, collecting rocks and immersing themselves in nature. However, Gary could not remember any details of their hike, and his next memory was of being back at the campsite with scoop marks on his butt and becoming violently ill after dinner. The memory gap confused him for years, and as hard as he tried, he couldn't recall what had happened. In a session with Yvonne, Gary remembered an event from 1977 where he threatened to shoot tiny beings in his room with a shotgun and was subsequently abducted. He found himself lying naked on a table, examined by gray beings dressed in shiny clothes. They inserted long tubes inside his penis and anus, which caused him to have an intense erection. After that, they gave him an x-ray using a frightening machine that made him cry. Finally, he was brought into a room filled with green lights and returned to bed. You're going to hear a lot more about his penis. Just a forewarning. On Saturday around noon, he and Gary checked into Villa Capri after arriving. After catching up with some friends, they retired to their room for the night. Later, Sam woke up to a bright light in the room and was surprised to see Gary sitting up in bed looking outside the window, and then laying flat on his back, robotically, with his glasses on. Then, he saw a blue membrane, similar to Jello, with a shadowy figure inside moving between the beds, followed by a red LED approaching him. Next, he found himself lying in a bright room, shaped like an upside-down bowl, with a female gray scraping his feet. He noticed Gary lying on a nearby table, moaning while the aliens were examining his penis. S. They want me to go back to sleep, and I'm telling them no. They are telling me, we don't want you awake during this part. It's like she finds this amusing in a way, but annoying in another that I wake up all the time. Oh... I'm trying to turn my head to look at what I think is Gary. I'm sure it's him. And they don't want me to look at him. I'm not to worry, and they tell me, you know we're not going to hurt him. She tells me to be calm, and then she puts her hand on my head. I feel like I'm part of her, like she's family. The female Grey explained to Sam that Gary was different, and unlike the others. He was not connecting with them, the aliens at all. The being then reassured him that he wouldn't have to go through the same experience as Gary. Finally, after subjecting them to some pretty intense procedures that left Gary emotionally distraught, the beings returned them to their room using the strange blue jello-like membrane. The following day, Sam woke up to Gary screaming from the bathroom. 
Oh God, I don't believe it. I've got marks on my penis. Gary recalled. It looked like an equilateral triangle, and there was about half an inch on each side with puncture marks inside of it. Many of them. He continued. Sam, you're not going to believe this. I have this mark. But Sam had zero interest in looking at it. Later on, after the conference, he, Yvonne, and several of the people who were abducted that weekend went out to dinner. Everyone was miserable, sick, tired, and on edge. And yet, Gary simply could not shut the fuck up about his schlong. He even convinced Jesse Long, who we will discuss later, and also had similar marks, to go with him in the bathroom and compare their penises, jaws style. What the hell? What the hell, Jeff? Um, later on, Gary got his hands on a camera and to document the mark. Well, yeah, there was a lot involved in trying to take pictures. What it involved was trying to suck in my stomach, lay my penis erect, not flaccid, on top of a towel, on top of the washing machine, and maintain all of that, keeping it on the towel, my belly sucked in, and my penis erect. Now the photographs just show a flaccid penis kind of popping out over a fat belly. Unfortunately... The camera had trouble autofocusing because it was too close to his penis. As with many cryptids, all we have are blurry pictures, and the evidence is sadly inconclusive. Although listeners will appreciate knowing that Gary's penis fully healed the next day, amazingly, an attendee interviewed for the book who ended up being one of the few who didn't get abducted that weekend remembers Gary as the guy who tried to show his penis to everybody. I don't really know what to make of that, but here we are. Del Coronado Yvonne and Melinda met at a UFO conference in Las Vegas in 1989. Melinda initially had no interest in the abduction phenomenon. During the late 1980s, she was employed at a New Age store that stocked copies of Communion. However, the book's cover frightened her, so she never read it. Her awakening occurred after listening to John Lear speak on the radio show The Happening about his UFO sightings near Area 51. Melinda joined the host and other listeners on a bus trip into the Nevada desert to look for UFOs. She witnessed multiple odd lights in the sky during the trip, which triggered memories of past abductions to resurface, dating back to when she was five years old. Under regression, she reported a particularly troubling one, where, when she was 15, aliens took her eggs with a large needle-like instrument attached to a tube into her stomach. She would then have multiple experiences involving reptilians in the military. Melinda arrived on the island on March 26th with her roommate Amanda. During the night, she woke up to a bright light in her room and a whirring, humming sound. She coincidentally wore a little A. Lee Inn, a famous bar, motel, gift shop, and Rachel Nevada shirt that night. She was lifted off her bed and found herself on a gigantic spaceship. Sitting in a high chair next to Gary 
who she recalled from dinner because he wouldn't stop talking about his penis, looking extremely puzzled. There, the Greys inserted a needle into her temple, causing a flood of memories to overflow in her mind. Next, she saw Alice standing in line, waiting for her turn, which indicates that Alice has been abducted two nights in a row. Later on, Melinda was taken to a huge room where several people, some of whom she recognized, were lying on tables being worked on by greys of all sizes and mantoids and screaming and crying out in pain. The greys were accordingly doing all this to collect memories of people's paranormal or psychic experiences for unknown purposes. Following the abduction, she felt the urge to call John Long. During an early experience with his brother John, Jesse Long Jr. was implanted with a crystal-like object in his shin, which he had removed in 1989 and nicknamed Junior. The two started working with Yvonne in the early 90s. Their incredible story was featured in her first book, Chosen, Recollections of UFO Abductions Through Hypnotherapy. With the help of Whitley Strieber, who became interested in his case, Jesse had Jr. analyzed at the Southwest Research Institute in Austin, Texas. The analysis revealed high levels of calcium, phosphorus, and sulfur. These levels were unprecedented for glass or transparent ceramic from the 1950s. Jesse was a script supervisor for movies such as Pet Cemetery 1 and 2, Dr. Alien, Beach Babes 2, Cave Girl Island, Assault of the Killer Bimbos, and Vanilla Ice's film debut, Cool as Ice. He also appears to have a very short stint as an actor in the softcore porn industry, which could have possibly influenced the Gray's decision to select him to father dozens and dozens of hybrid babies. I don't know. Like many serial abductees, Jesse demonstrates remarkable psychic abilities. He has maintained a detailed and organized predictions journal for several years and established a process to guarantee the precision of his visions, which involves the following steps. He permits his computer to date the prediction, prints out two copies of said prediction, duplicates one of the copies, mails it to himself, and requests the post office to hand-cancel the letter to obtain a date stamp. This copy is never opened. The second copy is retained for his personal records and as a point of reference. That seems tedious. Jesse kind of, sort of, but not really predicted 9-11. On Tuesday, August 14th, 2001, he wrote, quote, An airliner will collide with a UFO over a populated area. The government will try to cover it up as a small plane hitting a larger aircraft and will probably show the wreckage of the UFO. They will produce the actual wreckage of a small plane, but not the one that hit the larger aircraft. There will be a supposed dead teacher, student pilot of the small plane recovered from the crash. Let's take a moment and marvel at Jesse's mental gymnastic skills. If I had meant an alien craft... I would have written UFO in all capital letters together, but having put them in small letters with periods after the U and the F and not the O, I was uncertain as to what the letters meant. 
I soon realized, however, that my skepticism was validated. It wasn't a UFO. It was a WTC, as in the World Trade Center. My own handwriting confused me, mistaking a W for a W, a T for an F, and an O for a C. End quote. He continued, First reports of the first plane hitting the World Trade Center told of a small two-engine plane, according to White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer. This occurred while riding in President Bush's motorcade on the way to the Brooker Elementary School. Shortly after, Mike Morrell, the CIA's White House briefer, confirms that it was in fact a large commercial aircraft. This could account for seeing both a small plane as well as a larger one. The supposed dead teacher-student pilot, these hijackers were student pilots, having trained in Florida. FBI then claims recovered passports of the terrorists confirming their identity, regardless of no recovered human remains. They will not produce wreckage of the larger one. The government says they never recovered the black boxes of the larger aircraft, I find this utterly impossible. During a visit to his home in Tennessee, Jesse shared a dream with Yvonne. He saw a plane crashing into the World Trade Center. He later showed her a drawing he had made of a crack in the towers before they collapsed, which he had dated back to July 17, 1991. As 9-11 approached... Jesse continued to have flashes and dreams of an upcoming event in New York, but was unsure of their meaning. On the morning of September 11, 2001, as she witnessed the collapse of the first tower on Good Morning America, she received a distraught call from Jesse, who was crying and shouting that he had seen the plane hitting the building in his vision. That's what I saw! The plane going into the building! Oh my god! My vision... The plane going into the building. Jesse's most significant and astounding prediction was his one about Conan O'Brien. On Tuesday, September 28th, 2004, he wrote, Conan O'Brien won't live long enough to take over the Tonight Show host spot from Jay Leno, or if he does, he won't live long afterward. Jesse's Interpretation Wednesday, January 13th, 2010 well, from the looks of things, Conan O'Brien's stint as host of The Tonight Show didn't live long. About seven months. I'm trying to figure out what it is I was seeing. In this case, live may have meant how long Conan's Tonight Show would be on the air, not necessarily an impending death for Conan. Hopefully I'll get better at this. I'll keep writing down things as I get them. In fucking credible. Jesse showed up on the last day of the conference. After the event, he attended the infamous dinner where Gary wouldn't shut the fuck up about his skin flute. Gary mentioned he had a triangle on his penis like I had, and he wondered if I would look at it and see if it was similar. Gary and I went into the men's restroom, and Gary showed me the triangular mark. It was identical to the one I had received previously, in the same location, and about the same size. Under hypnosis, John, who did not attend the conference, remembered being abducted from his home in Arizona on the night of the 26th. 
He was taken by a tall, caped gray into a dark room where he was given a quick, painless exam and instructed to cooperate or else. The caped gray then left the room and more people were brought in. The aliens attended to them, tried to minimize disruption, and did not want excessive crying or yelling. Instead, they focused on caring for those who were upset and attended to their needs. After being in the room for a while, the abductees were taken away, with couples being separated. John recognized some of the individuals in the room, including Sam, who seemed to be okay with the experience, Gary, who was extremely upset and appeared to be ready to wreck some alien shit or hit someone, Alice, who was very quiet, Melinda, who was a few tables down from him, and Mike, who looked miserable, like he was waiting at the DMV. John was then taken into a different room, where he was stripped naked and forced to have sex with a familiar woman on a stainless steel table, taking directions from a tall, caped gray. Jay. He's the one with the collar. The cape. I can't see his body. He's in the room, but he's on the other side of the partition, and the little ones are talking to him now. The little ones leave, and there's only the one that helped me disrobe, and he's telling me what to do, and they say they want me to touch her, like, nicely, like a man would do. The experience was extremely traumatizing for John. He felt like he was violating her against his will. He kept apologizing throughout the intercourse. However, the woman was surprisingly understanding and calm. She reassured him it was okay and hugged and comforted him when it was all over. Afterward, John was told by the aliens to go help Melinda calm down the other abductees who were crying and screaming in the adjacent room and reassure them. He looked at Gary but was told, You can't help this one. Later on, John was instructed to take a bunch of people with him inside a large tank. Jay, I know what's going to happen. I have had this before, but I can't remember when. So I go in, and the people follow me in, and I tell them what is going to happen. I tell them we're going to be in heavy liquid. And it's going to be frightening, but don't be afraid because I was okay and I tell them they are going to be completely submerged in this liquid. They don't look at me, but they don't look happy. They're uncomfortable, like they're being tricked. But I keep telling them that they are going to be fine. The tank quickly filled up with a heavy, opaque liquid that John compared to the same substance used for quote-unquote babies. He only remembered exhaling and not inhaling through his mouth, and was informed that oxygen was absorbed through the skin. Then, air came in, blowing the liquid off and drying them. John was taken to a holodeck-like space, where he was shown scenes of destruction and chaos, depicting an apocalyptic scenario in which big fiery balls destroyed the Earth. He was told that the human race has not been cooperating, and that their current situation is a consequence of their misdeeds. Although he didn't ask for a specific time frame, he asked the Greys why they showed him this. 
They explained that they had shown this to many people to change their minds and bring about the possibility of change. J. They looked like fireballs. They weren't bombing or anything. I got the impression they show this to a lot of people to let us know that we are heading on a path of destruction and we may not and we might need to be eliminated. Y.S. Did you get a sense that we would change this course? J. Yes, anything could be changed. You know, if we all got together in one mind, thinking collectively, we could change that path. Aftermath. The year following the events, President Bill Clinton signed Executive Order... 12958, which created a uniform system for classifying and declassifying national security information. The order eventually led to an unprecedented effort to declassify millions of pages of historically valuable records, some related to classified UFO programs. Yvonne revealed that a confidential source told her that President Clinton, that's me, and his bodyguards were abducted that weekend, but were taken to a different part of the ship. Wait, we were? Holy crap. That's wild. This would explain why none of the witnesses recall seeing me on board. The timing of the executive order has led to speculation that the Greys may have briefed me about the importance of disclosing the reality of extraterrestrial presence on Earth. However... There's a problem with that scenario. Contrary to popular belief, I didn't stay on the island that weekend. I showed up on Sunday, the day after the two mass abductions, and I hit the airport, like, immediately. I'm President Bill Clinton. You're welcome for that terrible, terrible impression. You're all welcome for it. Epilogue. Yvonne Smith. Following the publication of her book, more witnesses have come forward. She offers a Zoom therapist training workshop on her website. Sarah's website redirects to a shady gambling website. Alice. During a conference in Santa Maria in 2008, Alice and Dr. Roger Lear hired a psychic medium to perform psychic readings during the banquet. The psychic noticed a vibration coming from Alice's leg and told her that she had an implant. She had it removed by Lear. Turned out to be a piece of glass, though the removal infuriated the Greys. As a punishment, she often she'd often wake up with bruises and puncture marks all over her body and face. They eventually put a new implant in her ear this time. She lives happily with her dog Scrappy. Lacey. Lacey decided not to pursue any more sessions. She felt a sense of responsibility for Alice's abduction and feared that there were other details about the incident that she wasn't prepared to confront. She has since remarried and moved to another state. Mike. Mike wrote a book about the Coronado abduction in 2007, which features the absolute worst book cover in history. He and his wife have been keeping it low ever since. Jack. Jack keeps getting abducted and has developed psychic abilities, hopefully better than Jesse Long's. After the event, his wife, Melanie, became pregnant 
and gave birth to a girl, quote, plagued with health issues, but remarkably smart, end quote. Could she be one of Jesse's hybrid children? Melanie categorically refuses to undergo hypnosis and wants nothing to do with this alien shit. That, that's a hell of a love triangle if it is. Like a hypnosis love triangle. Damn. Sam. Sam has found inner peace after the traumatic events that plagued his life. However, it has come at a cost. His friendship with Gary was never the same after that fateful morning when he tried to show him his... Shining wizard? Really, Jeff? Really? They've gone their separate ways. As for Gary, he refused to be interviewed for the book and has since essentially vanished off the face of the earth. His whereabouts are unknown. I'm not reading this last part, Jeff. Jesus Christ. Um, Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on most podcasting apps. If you want to follow us on social media, buy some merch, or find the link to our Patreon page, head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com. I have a P.O. Box if you want to send me stuff. It's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. You can check out Welcome UFO People, the webcomic that Todd Purse and I make, on Instagram at Welcome UFO People and Twitter at Welcome UFO Peeps. We also have high res images available on each of our Patreon pages. Our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme for this podcast. Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg, and the great Desdemona is behind many of our t shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or while attending a conference at the Hotel Del Coronado. In gray, we trust. Media.